left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. We just looked at it and said, look, this is this property. We're getting it for a price that makes so much sense. And we can sell this at any time and make money. Maybe it doesn't sell for $950. Maybe it sells for $650 or $600 or $500. But we're still making money. So anytime I look at something, I just look at what's my downside? What's the biggest risk? And what's the probability of that downside happening? And does that make sense? Is it worth that risk? So I think that's how I look at every deal. Does it make sense to do? And what's the probability of failure on it? Left Field Investors, we are passionate about real estate investing, but we don't want to deal with the three T's, termites, toilets, and tenants. We think real estate syndications are the best way to build wealth without being a landlord. However, many real estate syndications can have a cost of entry that is too high to diversify effectively. Enter TribeVest. TribeVest is the platform that allows you to invest as a group with like-minded people and accomplish more together. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their multi-member LLCs and bank accounts, plus help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. When you invest as a tribe, you can get into more deals with a level of confidence that is hard to match by yourself. That's why I'm in 11 tribes. TribeVest is the premier partner for left-field investors. And what's even better is that all left-field investors get premium onboarding for free. Go to tribevest.com slash LFI to start your tribe today. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. Hi, I'm Kenny Wolf. You're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm really excited today to have Todd Dexheimer with us. He is the principal of Endurus Capital and Vitacare Living and started investing in real estate in 2008. Today, his companies own $500 million of multifamily senior housing and commercial real estate. He is also the host of Pillars of Wealth Creation, a great podcast I recommend you listen to. And as Todd would say on his podcast, now, let's get to it. So, Todd, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, I thought your little uh, signature line there would make you feel more comfortable here. So, the way we start out with our podcast is just your journey, your financial journey, really. How'd you get into real estate? Then how'd you become a syndicator operator? How'd you get into the asset classes you're in? If you could kind of just give us the overall overview, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of signature lines, my ending line on my podcast is make every day a Saturday. I say that because every day feels like a Saturday because I love, absolutely love what I do every single day. It doesn't feel like I'm working half the time. Sometimes I got to like stop myself because I'm like, oh, I've been working all day. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that's right. That's what I've been doing. So I started out as a high school teacher. I was a high school industrial tech teacher. So I was teaching like wood shop and metals and welding and that type of stuff in, in the high school, middle school level. And honestly, it was like day number one or two 
after going to college and then getting my full-time job, then I'm like, I said to my wife, I'm like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. It just wasn't that. It just didn't feel good. Like it didn't feel like it was the right fit. And so anyways, I taught for about five years, but three years into it, I started down this kind of real deep dive. Actually, two years into it, I started out on this real deep dive of like, what is my next step? And it got me into reading books and kind of just learning and growing and figuring out, man, I think I could do some of this real estate stuff. And I didn't know exactly what it looked like, but I saw the benefit of creating passive income. I did it in a very active way, so it wasn't very passive. But regardless, I started my actual investing journey or research during 2007, bought my first property, 2008. And I started the process through just buying like single family homes, duplexes, just stuff I could wrap my head around. And quite frankly, because I was a teacher, I like, I didn't have money. And so we spent all of our savings, our life savings on our first property, our properties that we purchased. And it continued to snowball. And we were able to do some refinancing. We were able to bring on passive partners and just continue to grow and grow and grow. And through the course of, well, I guess my first seven years, I flipped about 100 houses or over 100 houses, bought about 100 rental properties and grew and scaled like that. And then eventually I went to multifamily, larger scale multifamily. We're buying 100 plus unit buildings buying some senior housing. We have a couple, a little bit of commercial, not a ton, just to diversify a little bit into some of, some of those other asset classes. So that's the journey. That's, that's great. I was a teacher too, and I had the same feeling, I think, probably on the first day of school, like, oh yeah, this isn't what I thought it was. And I barely lasted seven years, but I'd had a career before that. I'm on like career number five. It's great to hear that you found something that you're passionate about and that you love what you're doing. I mean, that's such a huge help because then it's not work like people say. But can you go back to when you were a teacher and you're thinking, this isn't it for me. I need to find something else. What was the decision-making process or how did you find real estate? Because I was a teacher. I was looking for other jobs. I was thinking I got to get back to the jobs I was doing before, but I didn't like that. I didn't want to work in business. So I didn't know what I was doing, but I could. it took me a long time to find real estate and I found out on an accident. So how did you figure out real estate's what I'm going to take a swing at? Yeah. So I think part of it goes back to just my background. Like ever since I was young, always loving to tinker with stuff. When I was in high school, my dad worked for a manufacturing company and they needed shipping crates. So we would make these shipping crates, these wood shipping crates. And then out of high school, I was working remodeling construction. And so it was always like, houses and building and things like that. And so I think it fell natural to me. When I started reading these books, I'm reading different business books and I'm like, okay, this is cool. I love the idea of being an entrepreneur, doing that stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm stumbling into these real estate investing books. And I read the ABCs of real estate by Ken McElroy. I think that's the book that really like just started turning the screws and is just like, whoa, this is really possible. Like I can do this and I can really, I'm kind of a numbers type of person. And so I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like I can do this. So potentially something I could do and replace, I could actually replace my teaching income from this. It was just these through discovery. I mean, like I said, I read a lot of different books. It wasn't just real estate books, but once they started stumbling on the real estate books, it was like, whoa, this is it. So it's just 
I don't know if there's anything like crazy special about it. It just caught my attention. It just felt good. It felt the place that I needed to be. And that's just it. I'm like, it just felt good. That makes sense to me. The thing that doesn't make sense to me or thing that I'd like to ask you about, because I am an avid skier. And in fact, I'm, I'm heading out tomorrow to go skiing. Did you flip a ski resort? I flipped a ski resort. Yeah. So I got to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds way cooler probably than what it is, but it was still pretty cool. So we ended up stumbling upon this property. It was actually my business partner at the time was hunting, deer hunting on the property nearby and kind of walking and trying to figure out where these deer were all moving around. And it was on this property. And then he saw the ski lifts. And he saw this big lodge and he's like, what's going on here? Went, talked to the, found the owner, talked to the owner. He's like, hey, I want to buy this place. And the guy's like, well, I think this is like God speaking to me because literally my mom and I were talking about getting rid of this place and timing couldn't be better because we're ready. And so we ended up buying it for like $450,000, stuck a little bit of money into it, not much, and sold it. It was probably a year, probably hung on to it about a year, which is longer than what we needed to, but ended up selling it for like nine fifty. So did pretty well on the property. And the only reason why we hung on it so long actually is because we were fantasizing about doing something. We thought, oh, we could turn it into this great wedding and event center. We could turn it into like the snowboarding Mecca. This is a place in Minnesota, beautiful property. But it's a small ski resort. The guy that's running is actually doing weddings and events out of it. And he's got a big snow tubing hill. And he did just open it up this year for skiing as well. But yeah, it was quite the journey. So I had tons of skis. I had tons of snowboards. Give them away to people. And we had the chairlift. So we had a couple that we got operating. And it was a fun little deal. But it was like, this is more of a distraction than, <laughs> than what I should, probably should be. So let's just sell this. To somebody who wants to really do something. I know you're not going to go into the ski resort flipping business. No. But can you talk a little bit maybe about the mindset of there's this opportunity. I assume you didn't have any experience running or buying a ski resort. So the confidence or the guts to go and do something so different. Can you talk about your mindset in that time and what made you think, yeah, I have 100 single family homes. So why don't I add a ski resort? <laughs> What's the mindset there? Yeah. And I've done maybe not quite similar stuff, but different things like that as well. So, I mean, we took some raw land, developed that. So we've done a lot of different things. It's all about opportunity and what I see as an opportunity. And so that's what I saw. I looked at this property and said, wow, this is, first of all, undervalued. It's a gorgeous piece of real estate. It's got high potential for profitability for somebody. And I know what the purchase price we're buying at we're not going to lose money. You can just see like, look, what are the comps in the area? And we're buying it under value and it's got some assets. It's got a lodge. It's got an 8,000 square foot building on it. It had the chairlifts that we could have just parted out and sold if we wanted to. It had timber on it. We could have done some timber, some tree removal. It just had a lot of potential. It had a beautiful river running through it. We just looked at it and said, look, this is this property. We're getting it for a price that makes so much sense. And we can sell this at any time and make money. Maybe it doesn't sell for nine fifty. Maybe it sells for six fifty or six hundred or five hundred. But we're still making money. So anytime I look at something, I just look at what's my downside, what's the biggest risk, and what's the probability of that downside happening. And does that make sense? Is it worth that risk? So I think that's how I look at every deal. Does it make sense to do? And what's the probability of failure on it? 
I didn't come on this podcast saying, hey, let's talk ski resorts the whole time. But really, <laughs> it's the you saw an opportunity and you saw multiple different ways that you could accomplish your goal of making some money on it. Is it timber? Is it taking the lifts and selling them for parts? Is it doing a wedding venue? You could make it a hunting retreat, all kinds of things. And that's what I think it's the mindset that we're going after. Like when you see an opportunity, you have to envision what it could do for you. And you did that. And that's cool. So now I do want to get back to the real estate that you're doing now. And I think in some of the research I've been doing, you kind of are recommending or maybe looking at things like why should someone not go in and buy a hundred singles or a bunch of duplex and quads? Why would someone decide, hey, I'm not going to be a landlord. Instead, I'm going to be a passive investor, I think is where you're going with that. But can you talk a little bit about that? Why should somebody not be an active investor in singles, quads or duplexes? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody to not do it because certainly go ahead and do it. But what you have to realize is what you're doing. I think that's the important part. And you have to understand what your goals are. So here's the deal. Most people, the vast majority of people that want purchase real estate, they want to do it to create passive income. And they think of it as an alternative to stocks and bonds and stuff like that. They want passive income. How many people go into the stock market thinking they're creating a full-time job? You're not going to the stock market to go buy Walmart. You're buying stocks of Walmart and you're watching Walmart do its thing. You're not buying Walmart. You're not going to and say, hey, I want to buy your company. No, that's not what you're doing. But for some reason in real estate, that's what everybody decides to do. They're like, hey, how do I get into real estate? Well, I'm going to buy a duplex. But you're buying a business. And so you have to understand that. And so here's what happens is you got all these busy professionals. They're making a lot of money. They, a lot of them love what they do, or they have a busy family, husband, wife, your kids, whatever it might be. They're looking to retire. They got their own company, whatever it is. They're busy people though. And they think the only way into real estate is to go buy a duplex or a single family house. That's the best way because I got to have control. Well, how much control do you have over Amazon stocks? Like nothing. You don't have any control. So why do you have to have control over your real estate? So you create this job and now you've got your busy life, your busy job, your busy family, and you've got this freaking duplex that you hate because you got to go do showings and you got to unclog the toilet or stupid crap like that. And that's where you hear the people like, oh, tennis toilet's trash. I hate that business. Blah, real estate sucks. Well, no, it's because you did it wrong. You created yourself a new job and you didn't want a job. So instead, why don't you passively invest in real estate? And there's a number of ways to do that. Of course, there's REITs, but there's also syndications. There's hard money lending, which is a little more active. So there's other ways to do it. And you don't have to bang your head against the wall with these stupid little duplexes, single family houses, and all that kind of stuff that, quite frankly, is probably going to not make you nearly as much money. We can talk details of why that's not going to happen. But that's my whole mindset behind that is so many people want, oh, I want to get into real estate. I want to get passive income. And then they go buy a bunch of single families and duplexes. And then they wonder why it's not passive. That is... Awesome. If someone listening to this is considering buying a single family home and they have a job, just listen to that past two minutes a couple of times. Because had I heard that before I got into buying my single families and my small multis, I would have fast forwarded and gone right to passive, which I didn't know existed at the time. In fact, I thought my buying a single family home and having someone else manage it was passive. It is not passive. So that is not at all. What you just said there is key. A lot of people don't know that something else exists. And so that's why they go and do it. The only reason they don't know exists is because they're naive and they don't listen to podcasts like this. That's the only reason they don't know it is because there's no reason in today's day and age you can't figure it out. 
but people don't. So bigger pockets, you go on there and people are going to tell you, no, you got to be an active investor. You got to buy that single family and then you got to keep doing that and plugging away and do the burr and do all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not knocking on that. But you said it. People don't think you're going to make as much money doing the passive as the pseudo active or whatever. And I can tell you from my experience that I make a lot more money now than I did managing my single families. But can you tell me why you think people are going to make more money have a, hiring an asset manager rather than being their own asset manager and buying all these single families? Yeah. So I think the potential to make greater income with your own single family or duplex is certainly there. But I think the potential for the higher probability is that you make the same or less with a lot more work. And here's why. Most people aren't projecting the expenses, the true expenses, the way they are. Let's take a real scenario, a single family home of mine. Okay. This is a single family home. I purchased, I got it for a great price, by the way. So I am making money on it because I got it in 2008 at the depths of the recession, bought it for 65 grand, stuck a little bit of money into it. But here's what happens. Okay. I'm cash flowing. I think I'm doing awesome on this property. And all of a sudden I got a leak in the roof and I got to replace the entire roof. That cost me $6,000 roughly. Now today's prices, it's going to be like eight to 10. So that cost me $6,000. And honestly, that happened. And I don't remember the exact timeline, but within probably six to eight months, my water heater went out and I had to replace the water heater. And then again, I don't remember the exact timeline, but within like three to five months, my furnace went out and I had to replace the furnace on that freaking property. So now I got a roof, I got a water heater, and I got a furnace that I had all replaced within just over a year. And then it was probably a year or two, probably closer to two years later, I had to replace the stove and refrigerator. Both went out pretty much on the same day. So I had to replace those. So I've got all these expenses that just snowballed and kicked my butt. Now, happily, I've got nice reserves and I've got other properties that I was able to move cash over to to pay for this. But that property literally lost me money all these years in a row. And then when we add that up, I probably lost money for at least a decade on that property. Zero cash flow for a decade. Now, the only reason that property is still a good property is because I bought it for $65,000. But if I take a look at now my cash on cash return and my IRR when I sell, it's just not that great. And it's a lot of freaking work to get there. So that's a real case scenario. And not that that's going to happen to every property because it doesn't, but it can. But it also will. If you hold it long enough, you're <laughs> going to have to replace all those things. So when you say it doesn't happen to every property, you're right. It doesn't in the hold period, but it will if you hold it long enough. And that's part of the issue, right? hundred percent. And the repairs and maintenance. I'll give you another quick example. I will make this one faster. I had a single family house that every time a tenant moved out, literally every time a tenant moved out, they would cause eight to $15,000 worth of damage. And this happened to me four times, four times. And finally I sold the property, but every freaking time they would move out, I'd get eight to 10, 12 grand worth of damages. And I was making about a thousand bucks a month on the property. But when you count that, I'm making zero. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. 
Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily, or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Well, I'm convinced I'm just going to be a passive investor. So is the rest of my audience. So let's dig into, we talk a lot about multifamily and you do senior housing as well. So I'd like to concentrate on the senior housing. And if you could just start with, is it an operating business? Is it real estate? Is it both? And why are you into senior housing? Yeah, it's certainly both. You're outright. Quite frankly, multifamily, in my opinion, is both. A lot of people say it's real estate. It's both. It doesn't make money if you don't operate it properly. Yeah, good point. It's both, but I would say heavier on the operations. So when we're talking multifamily versus senior housing, definitely heavier on the operations. If I have a hundred unit building in multifamily, I've literally got two staff on site, maybe three, depending on what I'm doing, but two to three that are my staff that are there. They're working 40 hours a week. With my senior housing, I have probably 60 to 80 employees. Now, a lot of part-times, but I've got 60 to 80 employees that are there during the weeks. They're there. It's 24-7 staff for every 10 to 12, maybe up to 15 people, depending on the level of cares. For every 10 to 15 people, I have to have one staff person. So you can see how it adds up. And that's one staff person 24-7. So one staff person 24-7. So if I got 100 units, I got a lot of staff. I mean, I have potentially 10 staff on 24-7. So you can see how that's big operations. And of course, there's medical care. Now, our properties aren't really high medical care. We do have a couple of memory care. So those are definitely a decent amount higher medical care and a little bit different services. But yeah, it's an operations and a real estate business. What's the debt like on these properties? I know that's the big scary thing, right? In all of real estate right now, everything's uncertain and the debt is becoming an issue, at least in multifamily. What's the debt like for these properties? So you can get a lot of similar product that you can in the multifamily world, but I would say the most common types of debt, there's three very common types of debts. First, you've got the SBA, small business SBA loans. Next, you've got just local bank loans. And then last, you've got HUD loans. So HUD is similar to multifamily HUD, Little couple little different nuances, but very similar. SBA, most people know the small business administrative rate of loans. And then the local banks, your local banks are your typical 25-year amortization, locked in for five to maybe 10 years, recourse debt or partial recourse, that type of thing. So those are your three buckets pretty much. Are these like the large 100-bed facilities or are these the 6 to 12-bed single-family home in the middle of a neighborhood type thing? 
Neither. I'm buying uh, right in between there. But most of my properties are right around that. Anywhere from, I guess we have some 10 beds all the way up to 30 beds. So it looks and feels like a home, but it's a little bit bigger for some efficiencies. So when you're talking about passive investing, I don't know very much about senior housing other than I visited my grandma years years ago in it. So how do passive investors analyze a deal? Like when you syndicate a deal, how do I know if it's a good deal? I, I want to talk about how I bet the sponsor in a minute. Yeah, and usually we start with a sponsor, but let's start with the deal. How do I analyze it? What am I looking for? Are there some metrics that I should look for? In multifamily, I'm looking at break-even occupancy, maybe. I'm looking at the vacancy, the economic vacancy, and I'm looking at rent increases. What am I looking at for senior housing? Yeah, so I think one of the bigger metrics is going to be your margin. You want to make sure you've got healthy margins because the tighter the margins are, the quicker it is to lose money. So if I've got 10% margins, a couple things go wrong. I've got zero or negative margins. That's not a good thing. So if I've got 18 20%, which is a healthy margin in senior, it's not like multifamily where you're like at 50%, 18 20% margin, hey, that's good. We're looking good. We're healthy. We've got some room to have some weird things happen, and we're still at least breaking even, hopefully, ahead of the game. So I'd say that's number one. Number two is demographics. I mean, we want to make sure we've got good senior population right now and good senior population that's going to continue to come. So I think population growth is certainly important, but it's not nearly as important as understanding who's already in that town and who's coming into your buildings. Because population growth, again, that's good, and we have to look at what kind of population growth that is. So if we're in Florida, we've probably got senior population growth. That's awesome. But if we're in Minnesota or Wisconsin, where I am, we actually have senior population leaving. So what is that looking like? So I'm not worried as much about the growth of these markets. Again, I do pay attention to that. But the people that are typically coming into my markets are going to be younger people. So what percentage of the elderly population is leaving my market? That's really important. So I'm really looking at the demographics, looking how that's shifting, looking at the percentage of people that are at the age to come into the senior housing or getting towards that age. I guess a little harder to analyze, but you want to make sure that there's enough staff. So we're looking at what's the demand for nurses and anyone in the medical industry? What's the demand? Is there way... Are the hospitals short? Are the clinics short? And other senior issues, if there's not enough people to work there, well, you're just going to have problems keeping it full. It doesn't matter what the demand is in the market. If you can't have people working there, you can't keep the buildings full because legally you have to have enough people working. So those are kind of probably the three big main buckets, especially that are different than multifamily. Of course, as I'm analyzing the deal, analyzing the deal numbers, multifamily, senior housing, a lot of the same things we're looking at. It sells on cap rate, it buys on cap rate. It also will buy on uh, EBITDA, but cap rate as well. So it kind of goes back and forth who's selling, who's buying. And we're looking at NOI and, and growth and rental income growth and occupancy rates and a lot of those same metrics. And do you buy already existing properties or are you developing these? I do. Okay. So it's already existing is there a value add component? Are you taking over for like in multifamily or mobile home parks where it's a mom and pop doesn't really know what they're doing maybe and you're kind of institutionalizing it or maybe that's not the right word, but you're just making it more of a commercial operation rather than just a, a mom and pop? 
Yeah, that's typically our biggest value add. A lot of the rents are controlled by kind of just the market. And so it seems like rents, although they do get behind, isn't like multifamily where all of a sudden you can do some renovations, you could raise the rents by 20, 30%. It seems like maybe 10, 15% at the most. So we do some of that. We do some renovations, we make it a little nicer. That allows us to get more residents in. That allows us to raise the rents a little bit. But for the most part, it's just the operations side of it, implementing systems and processes and getting the right people in place and that type of thing. So it's funny. We took over a property and they were using carbon copy for everything. They didn't have computers. So just implementing silly wow. things like that, just simple. And then changing the reputation. A lot of these places just have poor reputations because they're being operated poorly. And so changing that reputation allows you to really drive that occupancy up. Yeah. Then we're talking about vetting the sponsor now. And I know that a lot of this might seem like, yeah, you can compare it to multifamily. But as you said, in a multifamily of the similar size, you might have two employees versus 80 employees. I would think there's some different questions we need to ask sponsors, right? They have to be able to manage 80 employees. It's a lot easier to manage two employees. So what are some of the questions or what are some of the things you look for when or our passive investors should look for when they're vetting a sponsor? Because at left field investors, we strongly believe that the sponsor is the most important thing. And then the deal is probably a distant second or the market. They're kind of similar, but the sponsor is what you need, quality sponsor. So how do I know you or whoever is the sponsor I want to put my money with in this senior housing asset class? Yeah. And quality sponsors, and I agree with you there, I mean, quality sponsors, if they're truly quality, they're going to bring you deals that are solid and they're going to bring you those deals in good markets that are solid. So if they're truly quality sponsors, if they check all the quality sponsor boxes, everything else probably falls in place. Not that you shouldn't check on that other stuff, but that just kind of as you're thinking about, okay, this is really quality. Everything should line up. So how do they manage? So that's really important. Like who's managing this property? Is it third-party property management? Is it in-house property management? Either way, we want to vet that management. We want to understand what kind of experience they have. We want to understand what kind of results they've had. Do they have in place to manage this new location because we need some regionals? So there's a lot of people to be in place. What's already in place with the current properties? What are the problems? Understanding kind of what's going on and there is really important. Some properties we buy, everything is really actually pretty much in place and we're almost just buying on cap rate. We're able to get some pretty good cap rate deals right now. And so some of it, we've got great operations already in place and we don't have to do too much. Just maybe put them into our system. So I think understanding kind of the systems and processes that are in place and really who's driving the employee bus and what kind of experience they have, what kind of leadership experience do they have? Just feeling comfortable and confident around that, I think is definitely something investors should be asking. Excellent. And I'd like to pivot. We're kind of coming up on the time, but I do want to talk briefly about multifamily. Can you tell us what are you seeing as far as deal flow, quality deals, distress deals, opportunities. I know you're not in the hottest markets, and I don't mean that as a negative. I look at that as a good thing. Right? You're not just in Dallas and Phoenix and Atlanta. It seems like you're in some of the Midwest and maybe a few Southeast, like Tennessee and some of the other stuff. So can you just talk a little bit about the state of the multifamily market from your perspective? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question because the state of the market is different in every single market. So you just mentioned a couple of the hot places. I think those are Markets that, although very attractive in the future, I would be very nervous if I was a sponsor in Phoenix and uh, maybe Austin and 
you name it. I mean, there's lots of markets that have seen, think about those markets that saw 30% rent growth, and now they're seeing rent declines. And think of the markets that have, Phoenix has 40,000 new units coming online, and absorption rate's about 11,000. So I think about markets like that and question what's happening in those markets. But I think those are long-term great markets, by the way. Like, they just might not be short-term great markets. We are in markets that we feel short-term are going to be at least okay and long-term are going to be good. Maybe not quite as good as an Austin, Texas or Phoenix, where they're going to see big population growth, but we feel like very well positioned. So we're in Columbus and Lexington and Louisville and like you said, Tennessee. And so we're in markets like that. So deal flow is definitely picking back up. It was really dry there for a while. There's still this margin between the sellers and the buyers. The sellers have expectations. They want to sell their properties for what they did in 2021, 2022 or the beginning of 2022, and buyers want to buy the properties for a discount because we've got high interest rates and things are different. And I think anybody that's projecting 6 8% rent growth is crazy. So you got to be realistic. Actually, I saw a deal that went out in Phoenix. They actually closed on it and they were projecting 8% rent growth. Now they told their investors 3%, but if you dove into the numbers, it was 8%. I think that's crazy. Like you can't be doing that right now. I think you got to be more realistic and look, Stuff doesn't go to the moon. It just doesn't. And there's a reality that eventually things are going to settle back down and maybe they don't crash, but things are going to settle back down. As far as distress goes, we haven't seen any distress yet or very little. I do expect to potentially be some deals. We'll see what happens though, interest rates and all that kind of stuff. But I do expect there to be some opportunities out there for smart money to come in and maybe infuse new equity, maybe take over some deals, potentially some receiverships out there as well. So we'll see what happens with the market. I think TBD still, but long-term excited about multifamily. Short-term, I'm excited about potential opportunities that might come with some volatility in the market. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. So the last question I usually ask on the podcast is, what is a great podcast that you listen to and we cannot use pillars of wealth creation. <laughs> that will already be in the show notes and recommendation for our listeners. Definitely check that one out. It's a great podcast. So if you're a podcast listener, what do you listen to? Yeah, I'm looking it up right now because I want to make sure I get the name right. So, okay. So the one I really like, there's a lot of them that I really like. It kind of depends on what you're looking for, mindset or real estate or whatever. But since we're on a real estate podcast, I'll keep it real estate. The one I really like is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. There's no fluff. It's a lot of data. And it's going to tell you what's going on. And it's not just multifamily. It talks about the office sector, the retail sector, but they're bringing in experts from all kinds of professional organizations to talk about statistics and what's happening and keeps you up to date. So I really like that because I love staying up to date. I love hearing what other people's opinions are. Half of people are wrong and half the people are wrong, but <laughs> at least they've got an understanding of what's happening around the market. So we can kind of analyze and think. That's great. I have not heard of that one. And I listen to a ton of podcasts. So I'm definitely going to check that one out. Thank you for that recommendation. So how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to connect? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, appreciate that. So Endurus Capital, E-N-D-U-R-U-S Capital.com is a great place to go. My email is just Todd at EnduristCapital.com. So they can reach me there. Otherwise, you've already mentioned it, Pillars of Wealth Creation. We've got a website, Pillars of Wealth Creation, and the podcast as well. I am on Facebook and LinkedIn, but if you're going to connect with me on Facebook and LinkedIn, just shoot me a DM as well and say, hey, I heard you on passive investing from left field. And that way I know to connect with you. Otherwise, I'm really bad at accepting friends requests. <laughs> just... No, I get that. I get that for sure. 
Well, awesome. This has been fantastic. I learned a lot. Thank you for allowing us to focus on senior housing. It's an area of interest in our community, and we're always looking for more knowledge in those spaces. So really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com. This is Zach Hapsensall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've completed over $1.7 billion in total transactions, including 11 successful full-cycle dispositions. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas markets, then set up a call with us today at rise48equity.com backslash invest. That's R-I-S-E 48 equity.com backslash invest. I enjoyed the conversation there with Todd and I love his line, make every day a Saturday. And, and he talked a little bit about that because he just loves what he does. And I think that's an advantage when you're looking for a quality operator. You want someone who enjoys it. You don't want necessarily a workaholic or someone's going to do it all the time. But if they enjoy doing it and they end up spending a lot of their time there, I think they're just going to be a, probably a better operator than others because they just really love it. And the ski resort stuff, I had to jump in on that because I am an avid skier and I wanted to know what it's like to buy a ski resort. And I probably never would have sold it had I bought one. But I think the mindset around that, he saw an opportunity and he went for it carefully. But the key was he knew there were lots of exits. He looked at the property, said, look, we could take the timber if we wanted to. We could take all the ski lifts and sell them for parts. We could turn the lodge into a wedding venue. There's so many different options for an exit that even though he had never run a ski resort, he didn't have experience in that asset class, it was all of the exits, all the ways that he figured out to make revenue from that that gave him the confidence to go ahead and do it. So I think that's just an interesting kind of case study in, yeah, it's a different asset class and none of us are familiar with it, but what can you do with it? There's so many different options. And when you have lots of options, that sometimes can really provide multiple exits and that's the way that you make some money so that was cool loved loved how we talked about stock investing you're not creating yourself a job if you're just investing in the stock market and the comparison is that a lot of people when they decide hey i want to get into real estate and they have a w-2 or they're busy with family and all this stuff they go active in real estate maybe because they don't know passive is an option but what they end up doing is you are buying a business and creating yourself another job And as we discussed, it's a job that you probably won't make as much money in as if you had done the passive route and found an asset manager because you have a W-2, you have a family, you have all these things. You're going to add one more thing on top of it and you're not going to be awesome at that one thing as you are at the other thing. So what I try to do now is use the expertise that I know I have and let other people use the expertise that I know they have. And one of my expertise is not property management or asset management, which is why I hire others to do it. And that's kind of what Todd was talking about. And then briefly on the senior living, I loved all the stuff he was talking about with that. But one thing I wouldn't have ever thought of is 
when you're doing a market study or market analysis, one thing you need to make sure is there are enough medical professionals and assistants and helpers in these facilities. You need to make sure that you have enough employees in your market to be able to handle that. So that was something that if you think about it, it's duh. Yeah, of course. But if you're just kind of going, well, hey, it's kind of similar to multifamily, you're maybe not thinking of that. So that was a really powerful thing to hear as well. And I'm not going to use Todd's signature exit, make every day a Saturday, though I love that. I'm going to use the normal left field investors exit, which is I enjoy the podcast. And that's it. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.